0: Abandona este inglés.
1: Las plazas vuelan, así que llama ya al 91-133-5832. 91-133-5832.
0: ¿Cómo tú ves tanta tanta pasión en lo que hacen, tanta dedicación? Porque luego tienes a lo largo del máster, tienes feedbacks con ellos. Y ellos te dicen exactamente cuáles son tus puntos débiles, cuáles son tus fortalezas, cuáles son tus weaknesses, debilidades, ¿no? sabes Y cuando ves a alguien que hace tan, con tanta pasión algo, no te viene tan natural decepcionarle. Porque si tú ves a alguien que da el 100% cien, a mí por, por lo menos no me viene como decepción así. Es una cuestión de respeto que luego se, deza, se desarrolla y se ve también con los compañeros, cuando sobre todo en un método tan dinámico, tan drilling class maravilloso. La motivación desde el primer minuto hasta el último es un factor importante, pero no el único. La excelencia de nuestros profesores, nuestros maestros de toda la vida, esos que hacían que el resto de tu vida sintieses verdadera pasión por Aquella asignatura. Así son nuestros profesores del Master en Inglés Profesional. ¿Por qué no llamas? Vas a perder esta oportunidad. 9113 5833. 3 5833. Llama y solicita gratis tu prueba de nivel. 911335833. 5833 Te sientes orgulloso de ti mismo porque tú lo puedes hacer. Con el máster en inglés profesional puedes conseguir lo que que quieras, tú lo puedes hacer. Ven a vernos a nuestra tienda física en Madrid, en la calle Orense 75. Y si no te viene bien, ya sabes, baugantienda.com.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of new books that I think you will like, but there is one that you really should have, in my opinion. The title of the book is very simple. English grammar. Yes, English grammar. 470 pages of English grammar. It's the best English grammar book on the market. For me, it's the best English grammar book in the world. The author, Claudia Martinez, is a veteran Vaughn teacher and a technical expert in our editorial department. And she has followed the spirit and the rigorous clarity that I have personally emphasized in the Vaughn method for more than 40 years. This book, English grammar, is the definitive guide to how we speak and how we construct our language today. As always, it's designed for Spanish speakers, hispanohablantes. In the book, we explain how and why, but we explain it in Spanish first, and then we give you many examples in English. We show you the structures, and often we compare them to the equivalent structures in Spanish. At the same time, we warn you, os advertimos, of many of the typical mistakes, sometimes important mistakes, that Spanish speakers often make. English Grammar. You can buy it in bookshops large and small, in department stores, on Amazon, in Baugantiendo online, and on many other platforms. This book is for you. It's for your children, and it's for your grandchildren. This book will last for a hundred years. There's no better Christmas or birthday present. English Grammar.
3: Welcome to Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on this program, I'm going to talk about finance and financial bubbles and how they they affected rather badly. They affected um Britain and France simultaneously. Um, partly as a result of of government debt. Uh, Debt that had been accrued, debt that had been caused by the War of Spanish Succession when the Bourbon candidate and the Habsburg candidate were fighting for possession of the Spanish crown. But uh, before I get into that, let me tell you about a a curious moment in history. Uh, Back when Marco Polo was writing, back in the second half of the 13th century. Well, actually, Marco Polo did not write. Uh, Marco Polo was taken captive. Remember that um, Genoa and Venice were enemies, and Marco Polo's ship was captured. He was thrown into jail, and there he dictated a book about his travels to the person he was sharing his cell with. Now, that man from Pisa... Happened to be an author, happened to be a writer of books, uh, popular books. In the past, he had written, he'd written about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And, um, a lot of his market was oriented toward fantasy. And so we, we really don't know, uh, how much of what Marco Polo told this man was later embellished, uh, and how much, you know, how much is authentic? One of the things that he writes in chapter 24, uh, how the great Khan causes the bark of trees, right? Bark is the corteza de un árbol. Um, he causes the bark of trees transformed into something like paper. To pass for money in his country. And he, he begins, he says, uh, t- tell it how I might. You never will be satisfied that I am keeping within truth and reason. In other words, what he is going to tell us is so preposterous and absurd that, um, it sounds like pure invention. Uh, did, uh, did these Chinese have paper money? Well, you know the Chinese had uh, invented coins. They invented coins about at about the same time as the Lydians, right in in um, in the Anatolian peninsula, what is today Turkey, the southern part of well, uh, the southern part of the west uh, toward the Ionian Sea. You had a very wealthy place called Lydia, um uh, in ancient Greek mythology, uh Midas came from Lydia. You remember King Midas, uh, everything he touches turns to gold. And yes, they they had more money than they knew what to do with. And evidently, uh, this area, Lydia, I suppose uh, that that would be where Bodrum is today, Helicarnassus, around there. In any case, um, Lydia invented coins. And the idea became so popular that it was very widely imitated. Now, at about the same time, The Chinese did the same thing. As far as we know, that's a coincidence. But some of the earliest Chinese coins were tiny uh, knives made out of bronze, uh, which might have represented genuine knives. Uh, Who knows? Uh, Okay, because (laughs) the Chinese were eminently practical. They put a hole in their coins, which meant that you could uh, string the coins, and that made it much easier to carry them around uh, or, or keep them safe. The fact is that um, these coins were made of bronze, and bronze isn't worth very much, so that it took lots and lots of these coins to buy anything expensive. For example, uh, 1000 of these coins would weigh something like 3 kilos. Now, another great Chinese invention happened, they say, in one uh, the, the year 105 of the common era. There was a a eunuch at the service of the emperor and he was responsible for sort of uh, pulverizing um rags and Fishing nets, right? Things things really you didn't need anymore, right? Redes de pescar, trapos, and um, tree bark as well. And he used it. He put it on a, a sort of a screen. Screen is not pantalla in this case. A screen would be more like a tamiz and let it dry in the sun. And the result was paper. The emperor was very <laughs> grateful, but they say that uh, the the eunuch in question eunuko the eunuch in question whose name was Tsai Lun, was later accused of financial impropriety and had to drink poison in any case paper was there paper was ubiquitous right um in in buddhism you have enormous numbers of texts and some Buddhist priest, had the uh, the the great idea of transferring that text to a wood block, then putting ink on the block and stamping it onto the paper. And uh, this happened, well, this happened much later. This happened in, uh, in about 710, right? The year 710 of the Common Era. So a couple of centuries after that, you had, well, there was a place in China called Sichuan, um... Sichuan, the famous for its culinary tradition, there's a, a, a kind of a pepper that grows in Sichuan that, um, is not at all like the black pepper that you get in the southern part of India, right? This pepper, it has a sharp flavor, but it will numb your tongue, right? Uh, in Tumethe. And this was, uh, this was considered amusing uh, by people back then and, and even now. This Sichuan pepper—I don't know—it's a—it's a different idea. The Asian food in general is more tactile, right? Uh, the Asians are, are very concerned about mouth feel and and the contrasts of what it's going to feel like in the mouth. You know, whether it's crunchy or or squishy or gooey. Come mm-hmm. and crujiente, um, and for them that that is that is just as important as the contrast in colors or in flavors. And so, yes, uh, the, the idea of a, um, uh, a spice that um, puts your mouth to sleep can be considered um, amusing. But um, there, there in Sichuan, by the way, um, once, once the people in Sichuan had access uh, to the other kind of pepper, to peppers from the New World to spicy peppers, to hot peppers that uh, the, the, the Aztecs gave to the Spaniards, the Spaniards gave to the Portuguese, and the Portuguese gave to Macau. Once those hot peppers made their way into the interior of China, to Sichuan, they were an enormous hit there. And so Sichuan cooking transformed completely from not... Simply using Sichuan peppers, but using all kinds of well cayenne peppers as well, and so that um, many of the Chinese restaurants that you can find in Spain offer specialties from Sichuan or uh, the restaurants themselves Sichuan cuisine. But again, back in the uh, back in the years that I'm talking about, uh, Sichuan had a problem in that bronze was scarce and the local coins were made of iron heavy and not worth very much so that in order to buy say half a kilo of salt you would need almost a full kilo of of coins of iron coins and of course this this really didn't work very well you know the the only other case i can think of of iron uh, coins, it was in ancient Sparta, right? In Greece. And the Spartans did this precisely to discourage the use of money in order to make people more austere, more self-sufficient and uh, to disdain opulence and luxury. In other words, to be more Spartan. But in China, this was simply done because they didn't have anything better, right? Uh, Iron was what they had. Now, back when Europe was celebrating the uh, the millennium, right—the first thousand years after the death of Jesus—there was a merchant in the capital of Sichuan, Chengdu, who who started allowing people to leave their coins with him, and in exchange for the coins, he gave people pares, right, IOUs. Remember that uh, in English, to owe is deber, no? Deber dinero. And so, I owe you means yo te debo. But, just as a, a joke, we, we write it, we literally write it as I, period, o, period, u, period. In other words, as an acronym, but, um, simply making fun of the word. Now, Uh, These are IOUs in English, pagares in Spanish, fiduciary notes. And with these notes, anybody could go back to the shop and claim the coins. And this became enormously popular. And other people started doing it. And uh, there was chaos. The result was chaos. All of a sudden... You don't know who to believe. You don't know which kind of money is really in circulation. Uh, on a program last year, I was talking about what was going on, uh, in the 13 colonies during the American war of independence when there just wasn't money, money of any kind. And so, uh, all sorts of organizations and local governments started to print their their own IOUs. The result was complete chaos. You had something similar in the Spanish Civil War, uh, on the Republican side. Uh, you had organizations, unions, uh, political parties that were printing not, not bills as much as sort of Bales, no? So authorization notes. And, if you were given some in exchange for something you had done, uh, you never really knew where you could spend it. As I say, this this sort of situation uh, considered um, intolerable by a government like the uh, like the Chinese, and so the the government took over the business of printing paper money. Now, because most people were illiterate. Uh, you had a little picture of the number of coins that this bill could be exchanged for. In uh, by the way, in, in American English, lo, el billete, no, de una moneda de curso legal, right? Uh, that is a bill. So, for example, a, a five-dollar bill, whereas in British English, it's called a note. So that you might have a a five-pound note. Now, for those people who could read these, um, bills or these, these notes, um, they, they all indicated very clearly that anybody who falsifies a note like this or uh, the, the English word would be counterfeit. Anybody who counterfeits will be punished by decapitation and the reward for Information leading to the capture of a counterfeiter is 1,000 yuan. Any accomplice of a counterfeiter who identifies that person to the authorities is also eligible for the reward, right? To, uh, to be eligible for or entitled to, right? Then derecho a. And uh, almost immediately, the uh, government began... Insisting that taxes be paid in paper. Now, for thousands of years, uh, taxes were collected in, in physical goods, right? In grain or other foodstuffs, cloth, forcing people to, uh, uh to produce that in order to meet the demands of the government. But now, collecting in coins and paper, people were free to choose. People were were not forced necessarily to to work all the time exclusively in this sort of thing, and the the economy be began to take off. Right, really began to take off at um, at a time when London was a cow town, um, Paris was you know barely the, the cité. You had cities in China of more than one million people. And in Hangzhou, right, that um, beautiful, beautiful lake city. I've, I've been to China twice, and Hangzhou was my, my favorite place there. At the time, it was the uh, southern capital. And as I say, more than a million people. And the, the idea was that uh, the creation of paper money made things like restaurants possible. However, uh, this really didn't last Right. The beginning of the um, 13th century, uh, Genghis Khan's army captured Beijing. And by the middle of the 13th century, uh, Kublai Khan was now in control of the biggest empire of the, in the world. And uh, Kublai Khan, I mean, being, being the head of a, a nomadic people, uh, Kublai Khan had no real interest in, um, in coins, right? Bronze coins. In fact, he made it illegal to use, coins. And with Kublai Khan, you have Marco Polo. Marco Polo wrote, paper money is circulated in every part of the great Khan's dominion, and no person uh, will dare to refuse to accept it in payment at risk of his life. All of the Khan's subjects (laughs) accept this paper without hesitation, because they can later use it to purchase whatever they want with it, such as pearls, jewels, gold, or silver. And so it can be affirmed that the Great Khan has more extensive command of treasure than any other sovereign in the universe. However, uh, the Great Khan wasn't satisfied there, uh, he tried to invade Japan twice. the The weather intervened. I I have read that the uh, the term kamikaze was used to to refer to those storms that um, that kept the enemy from Japanese shores. Now, Kublai Khan, in order to pay for these invasions, uh, issued this new kind of money. But government officials did not accept this money in payment, and all of a sudden, the money became less. Valuable. All of a sudden, there was inflation. It was. It was chaotic. Very chaotic. The lesson to be drawn from that is that money is only as valuable as people believe it is. And people are susceptible to both irrational exuberance and uh, pessimism and panic. And. Well, in the West, I'm not sure whether John Law from Edinburgh in Scotland, not sure whether he, he knew about the, the Chinese system when at one point he, he proposed to do the same for France. But yes, in Europe at this time, you know, they, they, they took these things very, very seriously. We, we have to remember that, um, in a, in a big way, the, the economic history of, of Europe can be considered as a, a history of textiles, right? Where the textiles went, uh, where they came from, how they were bought, uh, because clothing was a luxury item. And you had whole economies, like, for example, the Spanish economy with, uh, La Mesta oriented toward producing wool for export. To Burgundy, in the case of Castile, or to Italy, places like Florence, in the case of Aragón. And there, and in, in places, well, medieval fairs and so forth, um, you had banquieri, they used the Italian word, people who sit on benches. And the banchiere on their bench would be required to keep a certain percent in reserve. If, for example, in in the case of Barcelona, eh, evidently in the year 1360, there was a banker who couldn't pay his debt and he was beheaded, he was decapitated in front of his bench. In Barcelona, eh, if you could not pay your debts as a banker, you were forced to live on bread and water alone. And naturally, the uh, the bankers that ran ran out of money uh, they had to break their own benches and from this idea of breaking a bench we get the word bankrupt bank from bench and rupt as in rupture being the destruction of the bench now toward the uh, toward the end of the 17th century in the England of the Restoration under the Stuarts, back before the Dutch invaded, back before the Dutch put a member of the House of Orange, right, William III of Orange, on the throne of England, the king at the time of the Restoration, Charles. Now, uh, Charles was going to fight the Dutch. There was a a series of wars over trade, and uh, Charles was... Deeply in debt, his borrowers, or I'm sorry, his lenders in this case, his lenders were the uh, guild, el gremio, of the goldsmiths, right? Um, in this case, orfebreros. Plateros would be silversmith and orfebrero, goldsmith. Smith being anyone really who works with metal. So ferrajero is a locksmith, and at one point, the king decided that he wasn't going to pay his debts. He was going to suspend the repayment of his debt. And as we saw on an earlier program, in the case of Spain, when Felipe II did the same thing, uh, the, the result was catastrophic. But I'll, I'll be speaking about that in a minute.
4: for teens.
5: ¿Y ¿De qué es se trata eso?
4: Es un programa intenso, intensivo, intensivo de inglés que dura una semana. Aquí en Madrid, en un colegio mayor, y son clases, clases y actividades muy chulas. Mm, mm. Año tras año. Sí. <risa> Hay <risa> niños que repiten. Eh, chicos, chavales, vienen cansados, agotados. Ahora, que notan el empujón que se le da al inglés, de ¿eh? verdad. Y lo más importante es que vienen con ganas de seguir. Aprendiendo, motivados, y eso es lo más importante.
0: Una pregunta sí. que se hará la gente que nos está escuchando, por ejemplo, que nos está escuchando fuera de Madrid.
4: Uh-huh.
0: ¿Algún día se hará esto de los VIP en otras zonas?
4: ¿En otras zonas de España? Lo dejamos
0: ahí, que puede ser. Sí. sí. Todo llega, todo, ¿Todo llega. llegará. Eh, ¿dónde? Viene
4: gente de toda España, ¿eh? Vienen participantes sí, también de toda verdad, España. Verdad.
0: Pero bueno, hay gente que no quiere moverse mucho de su zona, sí. y bueno, teniendo más oportunidades de... De hacerlo. Más cerca. Más cerca de bueno, su a, la ¿a delegación.
4: Desplazarse, sí.
0: ¿Hay un, un sitio donde pueden informarse? ¿Una web?
4: Eh, pues lo mejor es llamarnos. Está, ah, ¿mejor está... es llamarnos? Siempre, sí, siempre. Lo mejor
0: es llamarnos. No pueden llamar para tratar lo que queráis. Sobre todo si preguntáis por los campamentos, que es el 911-133-5832. Sí. Ahora dilo tú.
4: 91, lo mejor es llamarnos, o qué, un número.
0: <risas> A ver,
4: nueve uno uno tres y ahí ya les damos información de primera mano.
0: Nos quedan poquitas plazas, eh, siempre lo decimos, no es mentira, es que como lo vamos dejando todo para el último momento. Pues luego pasa lo que pasa. Puedes llamarnos al 911-133-5832 y ahí nuestros maravillosos compañeros eh, van a informarte de todo lo relacionado con los campamentos. Nunca me cansaré de decir el teléfono. ¿Queréis decirlo vosotros? La última oportunidad. Vale, 91 ah, 133 no.
4: 5832
0: Hasta luego.
5: Vaughn Radio is proud to participate with the U.S. Embassy Madrid in Aula, the largest educational fair in the land. Stop by their stand for live shows, interesting interviews, and info on how you can discover all the amazing educational opportunities that await in the U.S.A. As American blues legend B.B. King once said, the beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it from you. We'll see you at Aula 2022 at IFEMA Madrid from March 2nd through the 6th. It's all happening at the U.S. Embassy stand 12B10. Write it down, 12B10. Don't miss this exciting educational event.
2: Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo la cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda... Para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de masters.
0: Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos 911335833. 911335833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos 911335833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del master. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Y Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pas perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pas perfecto pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. Wow, eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Hilger, Lorena. Wow, increíble, ha todo a Señoras y señores, ¿qué crack? El examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior, no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad. Y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911 335 832 911 335 832 o en grupo Baugan.com.
1: Mi hermano Raúl se está preparando para ser piloto. Lleva 500 horas con el simulador de vuelo y mañana es su primer vuelo real. Con 500 horas de simulador estará súper preparado, ¿no crees? ¿Quieres subir con él mañana en su primer vuelo? Y por otra parte, mi novio Tomás también se está formando como piloto. Pero solo tiene 5 horas de simulador, no 500 como mi hermano Raúl. Sin embargo, ya ha llevado un aparato arriba 5 veces y lo ha aterrizado con éxito. Si no, ya no sería mi novio, ¿verdad? ...no tiene 500 horas de formación como mi hermano... ...solo 10, entre simulador y vuelo real... ...y mañana llevará el aparato arriba por sexta vez... ...si tuvieras que subir con uno de los dos... ...¿con quién subirías? Para nosotros, al menos psicológicamente... ...una hora de vuelo real equivale a 100 horas de simulador... ...subiríamos seguramente con mi novio Tomás... ...a pesar de sus pocas horas de formación... ...para hacerse con un total dominio del inglés... ...la cosa es exactamente igual... ...una hora en Bone Town... Superando la ansiedad y los apuros de comunicación Equivale a 100 horas de clases de inglés
2: Nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto Ni lo hablo yo Tengo mis momentos elocuentes Y mis momentos menos elocuentes en mi propia lengua materna, que es el inglés. Así que repito, nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto. Ahora bien, si quieres tener un perfecto dominio de los entornos de comunicación en mi idioma, algo muy diferente, vete a Bowentown. Allí, entre angloparlantes de los más variopintos, avanzarás mil kilómetros en confianza, convicción y aplomo. Dominarás los entornos de comunicación a pesar de un dominio aparentemente imperfecto del inglés.
3: Gentlemen, this is Western Civilization from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. And on the first part of the program, I was talking about the history of paper money. And it's paper money that, uh, that a man, a uh, Scotsman, John Law, is going to propose to make France great again. Paper money had been used extensively in um, in China. Invented in Sichuan, where carrying around the traditional bronze coins was impractical because there wasn't enough bronze. They they used iron instead, and the iron was so heavy that they needed something better at least something better this was an i o u right um uh also in english called a voucher uh to vouch v o u c h to vouch for something now that's uh kind of fiar because um, um i can i can vouch for okay respondo right i i can vouch for that or i don't know uh <laughs> poner las manos en el fuego something like that he's uh, he's a very good person and i will personally vouch for him and so the uh, a, a little piece of paper a fiduciary note a an iou or pagare uh, th- that can also be a voucher the um, well los los tickets de comida are also called vouchers and you know who, Who knows whether that can be trusted? Uh, In the in the time of the um, uh, the strong Chinese Empire, with the government vouching for paper money, Uh, nobody could refuse to accept it, and the trust was there. But of course, later on, well, as we will see, um, just before the break, I was talking about uh, the stop. The stop of the exchequer, right at the um, the tr- treasury in England. Traditionally, they had a, a kind of a table. The table was was a little like an abacus, right, a Chinese abacus, and you had um, different squares with uh, different values. In any case, uh, alternating light and dark. And so this, this pattern, um, ajedrezado was going to be called a checker. And then later on, the tabla is going to be, well, el juego, uh, damas in English is going to be called checkers. And, uh, because of this, let's see, the, the place is called checkers and the, um, the head of the treasury is called the x checker but of course it it goes further um comprobar is to check but precisely because of this everything has been checked and double checked and of course that uh, that kind of v shape or chevron i don't know uh, the kind of thing we associate maybe with the adidas logo that is called a a check in english and of course because of this um association with the with the treasury uh, to write a check. So you can pay in cash or by credit card, but you can also pay by check. And uh, traditionally, when people went abroad, right, when people went to f- on foreign holidays, they would take traveler's checks. But in this case, uh, Charles told the exchequer to stop payments. This was called the stop of the exchequer and it was in 1672 and uh, the result was the ruination of the um, of the people who had lent him money in this case goldsmiths goldsmiths uh goldsmiths had also been in the business of giving vouchers to people ious and of course when charles couldn't pay them th- uh, they couldn't redeem those vouchers either they became worthless pieces of paper and Everybody suffered. Finally, as I say, the Dutch invaded, the Dutch installed their stadtholder, right? The head of the Staten, Uh, that's where we get Staten Island in New York, right? This is the legislative body of the Dutch Republic. So the stadtholder became the British king. And almost immediately, they established a Bank of England. This allowed the government to borrow more cheaply. Remember that um, the, um, the the ruination of Spain, the the uh, decline and fall of of everything Spain had been was in a large part uh, due to the debts incurred when Carlos Quinto wanted to become Holy Roman emperor. He had to borrow millions and initially, at twenty percent interest. But by the time Carlos Quinto simply washed his hands of everything and uh, retired to Uste, he was paying fifty percent in interest on all all kinds of new loans that he was taking out. The the, the loans never stopped. The debt never stopped growing. And uh, just the year after he took over, when Philip II finally understood what his father had done, he did the, the very uh, the um, the very same thing, he stopped payments and uh, the result was economic chaos and enormous contraction in the economy and in the Spanish Empire's ability to project itself. Then uh, when he did it again in the 1570s. The, the result was, uh, the destruction of Antwerp, right? Um, Amberes, right? Uh, Spanish troops, actually these were not Spaniards. Most of them were Italian and German. But they were in the Tercios de Flandes. And they hadn't been paid for so long. They simply decided enough was enough and, um, began pillaging and burning what until that time had been the most beautiful and and, uh, economically the busiest city in Flanders in an incident known as the Spanish Fury, which it it always makes me laugh every time I hear the term Spanish Fury used in the context of football. My mind automatically goes to the idea of soldiers destroying a city. In any case, uh, the... The Dutch had solved their problem with a national bank. And now the Bank of England was going to allow the government to do the same. The government was desperate for for funds. Uh, This was put, you know, sold to the public. And the initial amount was 1.2 million pounds, or about the equivalent uh, to the government budget. And and this was in exchange for 8% per year. Which is a high rate, but lower than what the they had been paying, right? Uh, lower than um, what the government had been paying, say to the uh, to the goldsmiths and the uh, the area today known as the city uh, that that became the site of the royal exchange, and people of <laughs> many different nations there buying, selling, and making fortunes, and some of them, of course, losing fortunes. Now, one of the people there at this time was John Law. John Law had been born in 1671 in Scotland, and he was precisely the son of a goldsmith, so that he was born relatively well to do, relatively affluent, wealthy, although his father died when he was 12 years old. But um John Law, well, at that point, he was in school. He was a schoolboy. Brilliant, brilliant in maths, mastering all sorts of new things, like, well, calculus at that point was new. But yes, arithmetic, algebra, trigonometry. But <laughs> at the same time, he liked to go out at night and... uh and gamble And, well, all all games of chance Right, he could do the calculations mentally All games of dexterity, right uh, Ability, skill He was very, very good at tennis Which was just becoming popular at this time But even better at cards And uh, by the time he was 20 He came to London And just <laughs> knocked everyone over um, Evidently he was very handsome very well spoken, witty, ocurrente, and very well educated, very polite, well mannered, and uh, charismatic, right? Precisely the kind of person who can charm the birds off the trees. Now, in 1694, when Law was 23 years old, he killed a man over a woman. They were both rivals for the same girl, and we do not know her name. Now, far from being discreet about this, uh, they, they dueled in Bloomsbury Square so that it was public and notorious. Everybody knew who he was. He was arrested. He was put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to death. And we do not know... How he got out of it. We do not know how he ended up a couple of months later in Amsterdam because he, he was in jail. He was awaiting execution. And, and the next we hear, he is in Amsterdam. And well, as I say, Amsterdam, the, the head of best practices at that time, uh, the, the, the head of uh, financial innovation. And he makes careful study of the Bank of Amsterdam, founded uh, almost 100 years earlier, and uh, the Dutch East India Company, the Dutch West India Company, everything that moves the Dutch economy, and the result is a pamphlet, Money and Trade Considered with a Proposal for Supplying the Nation with Money, published in Edinburgh, Scotland, in the year 1705. This indicates that he had thought seriously about what money really is. Because to his contemporaries, you ask them what money is. Uh, money is silver, gold, nothing else. Money is precious, but it, it all leads back to uh, uh, to silver and gold. However, in this pamphlet, Law is using this, this idea, this originally Chinese idea. Maybe he read it in Marco Polo that... Um, that paper is more qualified for the use of money than is silver. And that with this paper money in circulation, the economy will become more dynamic. He said, a greater quantity of money employs more people than a lesser quantity. And yes, this, this was the lesson from, um, from the influx of gold and silver from the new world, from places like Potosi. Uh, the, um, the European economy had become much much more dynamic on a, on a much earlier program. I, I was talking about the situation in Europe uh, before the Portuguese decided to go to Africa and look for gold in Africa. how uh, there was you know the silver mines in Europe were producing less and less. Um, Europe was running out of coins and the result was an increasingly weakened economic system in, incapable of the kind of transactions that that keep an economy going this demonetization of the economy had forced people back into um bartering el el canjeo el trueque whereas in law's time um those those uh, silver mines, those european silver mines they they were closed right uh, they were no longer competitive with with all of the silver coming in from the new world but law's genius was to think that you could do more with paper infinitely more with paper, and greater economic activity would inevitably lead to exports, a surplus of Exports. This is exactly what uh, people are talking about when they mention quantitative easing, when the central bank prints more money in order to sustain economic activity. And uh, one of the things that kept the economy going in times of COVID, all of this we owe to the genius of of John Law, and uh, and there he was, a, a fugitive. In Amsterdam, but he made a lot of money There's speculation and in, in gambling, and so for something like the next twenty years, he was he was in the uh, mostly in Italy. At at one point, he was in Savoy. The Duke of Savoy, Victor Amadeus the entertained this proposal that um, law could make him a rich man. That that law could. Turn this tiny kingdom of Savoy Into an economic powerhouse But um, The interview did not go well In any case, Law Law went to France from there And two years After he had established himself In France Old King Louis, King Louis XIV Died, that was in 1715 Now, uh, King Louis Right. Increasingly old, increasingly conservative, not, not the, uh, dynamic young man that, uh, he had been. However, the new person in charge, um, this is a regency, right? And the regent was the Duke d'Orléans, right? Um, the Duke was interested in experimentation. I suppose Is the regent, right? You're just, um, holding on to things until, the Heir is of age until the Crown Prince can become king uh you're only there for a while, so you might make the most of it uh in any case uh they knew each other. they were compañeros de Huerga just a pair of um wastrels. but it was time to to put it into place. He was going to call it the Mississippi system. This is at a time when France had big dreams for the New World. Uh, French North America, right? They had access all the way through the St. Lawrence, Quebec, uh, to the Great Lakes, and from there down the Mississippi through Louisiana, entirely encircling the British colonies there. So, a law set up a company, the Compagnie d'Occident, right the, the company of the west and louisiana possession of louisiana was transferred to this company and the company was going to be allowed to uh, to issue shares right emitir right. acciones and the debt of france the government debt was going to be consolidated in the shares of the company and um, France was severely in debt. Uh, the uh, right uh, Louis the Fourteenth had died, but before he died, he made sure that his grandson was on the f- Spanish throne. There had been a war uh, between the Bourbon contender and the Habsburg contender, or rather pretender to the throne, and this was the War of Spanish Succession, in which Britain participated, and France as well. And both countries now deeply in debt because of it, looking for a way out. And France, thanks to John Law, has found a way out. Now, they promised a dividend of 200 French livres per share. Uh, The price of the shares immediately uh, went up. Exponentially, uh, so that uh, it was selling for five thousand livres, and Law suddenly became the most desirable person in France. Everybody wanted uh, uh, to to get shares from him. People needed access to more shares. They never left him alone. Uh, women literally threw themselves at him. Hundreds of people there on the street. He was in the Place Vendôme, right? Then, as now, uh, the one of the most fashionable, if not the most fashionable part of Paris. And hundreds of people outside his house, trying to get into his house, trying to break into his house, um invited to parties every night of the week. All sorts of people vi- <laughs> trying to figure out what his vices were. Now, of the 300,000 shares in circulation... Uh, the Duc d'Orleans, right, the, um, the regent, <laughs> had acquired one third of them. He had more than a hundred thousand shares. And by 1719, these shares were trading at more than 60 times their original price. Uh, many people were scandalized because, uh, it, it was understandable that the Duc Orleans would be, would be now the, uh, you know, fabulously rich. Incomparably rich, but there were people who were from lower classes, uh, obscure backgrounds, uh, not the kind of people you would normally want to be seen in public with. the The, the British have an expression for that: not clubbable. Right? You you wouldn't take this person to your club. And uh, these people were also making fortunes and starting to appear in public. And law was. Uh, then he uh, converted to uh, Roman Catholicism, and this was done with great ceremony. He was declared the Comptroller general of the finances of France in seventeen twenty and in April of that year he became superintendent now the, the title superintendent <laughs> had not been used in in France uh, since well for for the last Fifty years, more than fifty years. Superintendent, and w- with John Law, this is going to be the last time that anyone is ever called superintendent. Uh, he was effectively the the prime minister, right? <laughs> as powerful in his own way as as Richelieu had ever been, and you can imagine the um, the the surprise and shock of people back home, and um, with well, the idea of the. the in Britain, because uh, law said on more than one occasion that he was personally capable of ruining the trade and credit of England, not just England, but Holland as well, whenever he pleased, and that he could break the Bank of England whenever he felt like it and destroy the East India Company. This was absolutely the height of his power in 17. Twenty, But it wasn't going to last Very, very soon uh, John Law was going to be ruined And France itself was going to be ruined Because of this horrendous speculation But, okay, I've run out of time I'm going to have to talk about this on my next program
1: Tengo 23 años y acabo de terminar la carrera de, de Administración y Dirección de Empresas. Decidí hacer este máster antes de, de acabar la carrera porque mi nivel de inglés era realmente bajo. Veía que tenía que buscar un trabajo y que necesitaba un buen nivel de inglés y creí que esta era